So what might this future economic arrangement look like? Well, I think it would be based on a more participative capitalist system where more people were involved in corporate ownership and in corporate decision-making. Part of the problem of the existing system is that the majority of people are completely disconnected from the decisions that affect all our lives. If they were included and were able to influence decision-making, corporate activity would be more in the interests of people at large rather than just remote shareholders. It certainly sounds to me as if, to an extent, this might be pushing at an open door. A lot of managers are frustrated that they try to involve their workforce and motivate people, but then they're still having to answer ultimately to these external shareholders somewhere else who are taking money out of the business. And I suppose it is the case that a lot of companies are revisiting this issue of ownership because of the pressures the stock market's putting on them and the way that it restricts what they really want to do strategically and in terms of employee involvement. Yeah, I mean, I think that is happening, but it's still kind of very limited. And I think we need to go a lot further and a lot quicker. And there's no guarantee that it's automatically going to happen because the majority of large corporations are still publicly floated quoted companies. And I think we need a new sort of financial engineering approach. And one such approach has actually been put forward by the American economist Jeff Gates, who's actually developed what he calls an ownership solution, whereby companies will set aside, either by voluntarily or by compulsion if necessary, a share of their retained profits each year, which would be capitalised and new share capital created, which could be conferred upon other stakeholders, in particular employees, so that this system could be incorporated within a, a democratic society where we still retain the rule of law and property rights, because it wouldn't be necessary for the state to expropriate ownership rights of existing shareholders, but it would create more shareholders. So every year, as a company grows, a portion of retained profits are capitalised, new shares created and given to workers. And the idea is that if people who own a company are actually involved in the managing and running of that company, it's more likely to pursue goals other than profit maximisation than if the company is owned by and ultimately controlled by remote shareholders who have no actual intrinsic interest in the company itself are only interested in short-term profits. That certainly sounds like a way of keeping capital in the business and spreading that capital through to the workforce without disowning the current shareholders who still keep their own stake in the business. Absolutely, yes. Is it easy to move towards that? It's been put forward as a model. Do we need a sort of legislative push before companies move in that direction? Possibly, but not necessarily, because I think it can be done partly by education. Senior executives, through enlightened self-interest, I think, can be persuaded, because otherwise the existing system is probably going to implode. We certainly have examples, don't we, of managers who've been doing that. People who set up a business, it's grown, they want to retire, they want to hand on a viable business, and instead of floating it, they've worked out a way of giving employees the shareholding, often through a trust. So yes. I guess this John Lewis model is catching on now and going yeah. into other parts of industry. Scott Barder is a company that, which I know quite well, actually, which makes chemicals and it has a turnover now of, I think, £200 million. And that was actually started by an entrepreneur 
who I think went public. It was a quoted company. Then he bought the shares back. And then when he retired, he actually gave it to the workers. And it's ever since been a very successful workers cooperative. And we have the examples of the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain. We have Semco in Brazil. There seem to be companies that are able to grow very, very large and retain that ownership voice for the employees and the employee involvement in product development, enterprise development that goes with that. And again, Japan, of course, the great success of Japanese industry in the second half of the 20th century was within a completely different ownership model. There was very few large Japanese corporations floated on a stock exchange. Mostly, they were funded by the bank in a long-term relationship. And no one can dispute that Japan did very well out of that. And it's noticeable that Japanese corporations continue to do well, even though the Japanese economy has had its own problems. I think the Japanese were a victim of their own success. The yen became overvalued, which made it difficult for them to export because they were so successful. And then they made lots of silly investments in American real estate at the wrong time. I don't think it's an intrinsic weakness of their lack of pursuing the shareholder value model. And certainly the days when the British and the Americans could begin to laugh at the Japanese because suddenly the Anglo-American version seemed to be an improvement. Those days have long gone. We've seen the stock market, the market-based solution, as you say, imploding quite severely in the last couple of years and a very expensive struggle to stop the stock market dragging the whole economy down. And an approach to banking over here, which had become very much focused on the capital markets, not on directly inputting capital to firms. So I think we have a lot of lessons to learn from the success of firms that were not based around shareholding and profit maximization. Absolutely right, because Japan and Germany, for instance, from mid-20th century and towards almost the end of the 20th century, were actually far more successful than the UK and the US, even though they were pursuing a completely different approach. Yes. And their productivity remains much higher than the UK's, which means that ultimately their average incomes are much higher than ours. We might have sped up our growth a bit recently, but we're still quite a long way behind. Absolutely, yeah. And we've seen Germany go through quite a renaissance recently, showing that those stakeholder arrangements can still innovate, can still get capital going to new uses. And it's not necessarily the Anglo-American model that innovates faster. Absolutely right. I mean, I think Toyota had something like 16 times the labor productivity of General Motors, even though General Motors was a quoted shareholder-owned company, and Toyota was very much in the Japanese tradition, because the stakeholders, the workers, were engaged and felt a stake in the business in a way which workers in a disconnected system like the US one didn't. Yes, Toyota is still teaching us lessons. It's got recall problems at the moment. It still expects to make a profit despite the problems short term that it has with those. And they really showed the British and the Americans how to build cars the modern way. They set up plants which had a different structure and which did seem to have a direct employee involvement in the product, which the old American and British car makers hadn't managed. So how are we going to get to a non-shareholder model which actually sounds to have an advantage? Well, I think we need, obviously, alternative governance and ownership arrangements, as we've discussed. But we also need a new accounting, because accounting is a very powerful tool in society, which influences behaviour. Conventional accounting measures and reports profit. And so managers within organisations are constrained to pursue profit, because that's how they're measured and rewarded. At 
present we don't really have an alternative accounting model and that's why I'm interested in trying to develop a, a Buddhist accounting model that would actually measure things that really matter um, which would be much more in the realms of human capital and environmental impact rather than the extent to which shareholder wealth is created. Yes, I suppose at the moment we have tax accounting and management accounting, and they're both narrowly focused on measuring profit. And economists complain that it doesn't measure profit the way they want. But anything that economists propose is getting us to an even narrower yeah. measurement of profit. Yeah. So we're, we're losing sight of the wider stakes in that enterprise. And I guess also the long term. We've talked about the conflicts between short term and long term profit making. Accounting is really just a snapshot and it's looking at the here and now. Yeah, accounting actually encourages short termism even more than the natural tendency of managers to pursue short termism because pursuit of long term goals typically reduces short-term profits because in order to invest in research and development or marketing or employee training for long-term gain, you're reducing this year's bottom line. Yes. And that's what accountants measure and report on. So we have to broaden what's measured right now and we have to lengthen the time horizon over which we measure it. If you measure, if you invest in research and development or employee training... Accounting rules at present don't allow you to capitalise that. Those things, although you've created, in effect, assets, intellectual property, you're not allowed under accounting rules to show those as assets on a balance sheet. They're written off as expenses. So the cost comes now, whereas the benefit is going to be in future years. So there is every disincentive to managers to invest in marketing, research and development, employee training, because the accounting model we currently have discourages that type of approach. So it's focusing us on the physical assets, not the human assets, yeah. and I suppose not the natural assets and the environmental impact either, two yeah. important dimensions yeah. that need to be introduced. Absolutely, yeah. Could we get there through people just adopting a new accounting system, or does it really have to be led by regulators and legislators? I think it has to be led by the uh, professional associations and the regulators, because we have a very strongly entrenched regulatory framework now, which is endorsed by company law, as well as sort of institutionalised practice, that it would have to be propagated and controlled by the regulatory framework and the professional associations of accountants. But we're a long way from actually having an accounting model and a set of performance measurement tools that could be used, even if business wished to pursue those goals. And there is a big research agenda for the future in universities, for instance, in developing new accounting models that can actually measure sensibly social capital, human capital and environmental impact. But here again, we might to a certain extent be pushing at an open door because there are certainly a lot of discontents with the current accounting system and a lot of reform activities already underway with regulators consulting industry on how new things could be measured and how existing things could be measured more broadly in a way that reflects the real value to the enterprise. Yeah, but I think that's kind of on the periphery. When I look at the main activity in accounting regulation and developing new accounting rules and regulations, it tends to be more and more predominantly refinement of existing issues, like how do we measure financial instruments? Should we mark to market or should we measure at historical cost our, our physical assets or our financial assets? There isn't much going on, if anything, in the realms of how do we measure human development or 
the extent to which you know we are polluting the environment most of that sort of stuff is still in the way of a footnote you know it's a narrative reporting which is still largely voluntary there's very little if any compulsion on companies to report social and environmental impact for instance Yes, marking to market rings a particular alarm bell because that's one of the things that undermined the financial markets yeah. recently. And I suppose the lesson of this is that we have to try to move beyond putting a monetary value on everything because then the things that can easily be converted into money get measured and managed. Yeah. The things that are harder to convert, the more human elements, yeah. are very often forgotten. Yeah. And it gives us a very narrow perspective on what the company is and where its value comes from. Yeah, that's right. Hence the adage, what you measure is what you get. But moving away from a monetary measure is the big challenge because I suppose it's saying economics isn't enough. Society has got to be brought into that picture. And we can't just measure everything by what it would fetch on an open market. There has been an initiative in the past to develop social and environmental accounting. It kicked off in the sort of 70s and 80s, but it kind of just died because it's impossible to quantify exactly the sort of things we're talking about. And there was a kind of debate among accountants, is it better to accurately report irrelevant things <laughs> or to broadly and less accurately report more important things? And the, the accounting profession decided for the former objectivity and accuracy was more important than whether what you were actually reporting on mattered or not. But it could have been otherwise. It could have. And I suppose it was knocked off course by some factors which we've moved on from. I remember inflation came in. So suddenly inflation accounting became yeah. a big theme. And then we had this shareholder management revolution, which seemed to be the way forward. So shareholder value became the big focus. Yes. We've seen that go wrong. We've seen financial markets have great difficulties. Yeah. So maybe the time has come to revisit those wider forms of measurement and to try to move those into the accounting mainstream again. That's a good point, actually. And inflation accounting is a very good example of the problems we face because originally with inflation accounting, the approach was called current purchasing power, which I think, and I think most probably accounting academics would concede, is the most sensible approach to dealing with inflation. But it was actually defeated because of corporate pressure. It tended, in a time of rising prices, to reduce reported profits and was opposed by powerful industrial lobbyists. And eventually, it was dropped by the accounting regulators. So anything that actually looked bad for industry tended not to get incorporated. They moved towards current cost accounting, which was less injurious to industry. So apart from the recent mark-to-market debate, inflation accounting was completely abandoned. But there's clearly a lesson in that. We end up with what might well be an inferior system of accounting because businesses had to push it in that direction. And businesses did so because they were being pushed by shareholders for immediate profit and for measures that would maximise that, when that may not have been in the business's longer-term interest. That's right. Yeah. So I, I guess if we need a certain amount of external intervention to move the accounting system forward, we're rescuing businesses from themselves or yes. from their immediate pressures. That, that's a, a good, good way of putting it. Part of the problem is that we have a perspective that requires everything to be funded and everything to generate a return. And so even our regulation, to a certain extent, is captured by this, this demand for return yeah. on investment yes. and a business model that shows a degree of profit. Yeah. Quite a difficult system to escape from, but clearly a lot at stake if society is to 
get its enterprises working more in its own yeah. interest. But we have to try. We certainly do. <laughs>